Welcome to episode 46 of the Green and Healthy Places podcast, in which we discuss the themes of well-being and sustainability in real estate. I'm your host, Matt Morley, founder of Biophilico Healthy Buildings. And in this episode, I'm talking to none other than Charlie Morley, a best-selling author and teacher of mindfulness, lucid dreaming, and all-round sleep expert. Charlie, who is, as you may have guessed, my brother, was authorized to teach within the Kagyu School of Tibetan Buddhism by Lama Yeshe Rinpoche in 2008. Since then, he's written four books, delivered retreats in more than 20 countries, spoken at both Oxford and Cambridge universities, as well as the Ministry of Defense, Mindfulness Symposium, and the Houses of Parliament. Our conversation explores the connections then between my world of healthy buildings and interiors and Charlie's world of healthy sleep and dreams. We discuss sleep hygiene, the physiological impact of sleep on our bodies, not to mention our brains, pre-industrial age sleeping habits versus modern day sleeping habits, and the power nap as a productivity tool during the workday. We also look at how we can create or collaborate together potentially on restorative spaces and sleeping pods in offices, something that I might design and that he might orchestrate in terms of the experiential component, for example. We also look at the role of meditation and restorative deep relaxation practices in improving rest and sleep later on in the day. So we hope you enjoyed this conversation with Charlie Morley. Okay, let's do this. Let's start with a big picture, right? So when we're thinking about sleep, and the sort of building blocks of creating a good night's sleep in terms of how much do we need, the risks of sleep hygiene and what you've described as the sleep delusion. Like how do you evaluate and measure a good night's sleep? Mm. So I think, you know, the measure of sleep is inherently subjective. How do I feel upon awakening? What are my energy levels the next day? Um, What is my cognitive ability the next day? So we can look at it like that. However, there's also a lot of research now that points to unless you are part of the sleepless elite, which is less than one percentile of the world's population who can do very well on five hours or less sleep, almost everybody in the world, seven to nine hours per 24 hour period is still the golden standard of sleep. And they've done some interesting tests where people who very high achievers who are only getting kind of six, uh, five or six hours sleep great social lives, heads of business, this kind of stuff. And they say, this is all I need. I work perfectly well on six hours sleep. But then you put them into a brain scanner or you give them cognitive ability tests. And although they say they feel optimal performance, their brain shows significant suboptimal neurological performance. Now that's one of the scariest pieces of research I came across because it shows that even if you think you feel fine, in fact, a state of sleep deprivation has been so normalized by ourselves and by society that our natural I feel fine state is actually one of suboptimal neurological functioning. So what's the next step? You force these people into a position where they have to have one extra hour of sleep a night. Uh, sorry, one extra hour of sleep per day. That's really important. It can be a nap during the day, could be an extra half an hour at night and then a half an hour nap. But you have to get one extra hour per 24 hour period. Their cognitive ability goes through the roof. They, you know, the descriptions they have is like, it feels like I've access to superpower. Um, their social lives become more vibrant. Their relationships, their interpersonal relationships get better. Uh, their performance at work gets better just through one extra hour. So yes, it is subjective, uh, but also there are very objective measures that show seven to nine hours for most people is seven to nine hours will allow us to uh, function optimally. 
Um, and crucially, just one extra hour per night can do massive, massive uh, benefit to, to everyone. And how do you see then in terms of integrating an element of tech so that you're able to literally see the sleep quality over the course of the evening that otherwise, or over the course of the night that otherwise you might not, you might have a sense of how you slept, but you don't really know. Are you buying into this? Do you think there's, there's real value in it or are we being sold a product and a service that frankly we've managed pretty well without all these years and uh, we're in a sense trying to create a desire that, that we don't necessarily need to own these things? Mm. So at the moment, one of the kind of higher end sleep trackers called the Aura Ring uh, who sponsored a, a, a sleep science study that I was part of. Even the Aura Ring, which is really the, the top end of the market, is still only 60 to 70% accurate, which means there's a crucial 30 to 40% of the time where it's just getting it wrong. And that's the Aura Ring, let alone most people have a much cheaper version, the kind of, um, uh, you know, the wrist-based ones that hook up to your iPhone and stuff like that. So if sleep trackers are benefiting your sleep, if they are making you feel more refreshed if they are leading to more healthy relationships with sleep then continue to use them but for a lot of people they lead to a real neurosis around sleep so take them with a big pinch of salt i mean in the new book the, the first chapter is about becoming your own sleep tracker so in the morning taking note of how do i feel upon awakening what are my energy levels throughout the day yes what time did i go to bed what time did i wake up any dreams i can remember becoming your own sleep tracker to create a baseline is far better than that than the level of tech we've got at the moment. However, there is something on the market that we use when we do these sleep science studies called the Z-Max or the Z-Max. Now that's about five or $600. And that's like a mini EEG machine. That's very, very accurate. So give the technology five years when we can get the technology of the Z-Max into an Aura Ring or into the to the uh, app on your phone, and then sleep tracker data will be very, very accurate. But at the moment, we're just a little bit behind. So uh, yeah, I wouldn't take, don't take it too seriously. So if we then jump into establishing exactly what's going on during a night's sleep, you have what you've described as light, light sleep, the dream phase, and then deep sleep. So sort of the top line concepts for each of those three and how is the sleep connecting with our health during the rest of the day? Like what are the processes going on? Sure. So there's actually two, there's the gateway in and out either side to the hypnopompic and uh, hip, uh, sorry, hypnagogic and hypnopompic. So stage one of sleep is called the hypnagogic state. And it's experienced by most people um, less as a sleep stage proper, more a state of drowsiness. So you can still hear the sounds of the room. You can still feel your body in the bed. Um, brain goes into deep alpha and theta. The brain looks almost indistinguishable to a brain that is in hypnosis. So every time you fall asleep, the gateway into sleep, whether in a nap in the middle of the day or at night, you go through this natural state of hypnosis. And it's actually in that state that we can do a lot of really beneficial stuff for our sleep because it's in the hypnagogic state that we can practice NS, uh, non-sleep deep rest, to use uh, uh, Huberman's term, or yoga nidra practices, or my term, hypnagogic mindfulness, which are these states of deep relaxation that happen just before we enter sleep. So we have the hypnagogic state, really good for you deeply relaxing, but a state in which people who have uh, stressed out sleep will spend a lot of the night. You know, you're kind of tired enough to be in that drowsy state, but you can't quite pass the threshold. Eventually, though, with normalized sleep patterns, you'll move from hypnagogic into light sleep. Light sleep is named uh, for the quite untechnical reason that it's just quite easy to wake people from. You know, back in the early days of sleep science, they would register the depth of sleep just by poking someone and saying their name. So light sleep, as it sounds, 
you're easy to be woken from it. Uh, You are now blacked out. You can't hear the sounds in the room unless they're loud enough. You can't feel your body in the bed, but you're yet to be dreaming. Um, Light sleep is really good for procedural memory integration. So sleep is all about memory. That's why there's a direct link, as we know, with our with our mum between sleep and Alzheimer's uh, and sleep and memory. So let's say you're learning to drive a car. It's in light sleep that you'll be processing the memory of how to do this, the stick and the, sh- and the, and the gears and, and all of that and the pedal and the gas and everything. That'll be happening in light sleep procedural memory. Whereas if you were in a car crash, that would be processed in dreaming sleep. So dreaming sleep is about processing emotional memory, um, memory reconsolidation, especially traumatic or, or stressful memories too. So we have the hypnagogic state, stage one, then light sleep for procedural memory and learning. Then we move into deep sleep. Deep sleep is very, very interesting. This is where the brain is almost entirely switched off. So your brain's never fully switched off. But if you look at the brain waves of the waking state, they're very close together. If you look at the brain waves of someone in deep sleep, it's called delta wave, is dominant brain wave. And they're very far apart. It's like, I know people can't see me, but I'm making slow, deep waves uh, signals with my hand. So in deep sleep, the brain's almost entirely switched off, very unlikely to be dreaming, very little happening in the brain, apparently. But actually, if you look at the neuroscience of what's happening, loads is happening. Deep sleep is when cerebral spinal fluid is flushed up into the brain, and it actually removes toxins from the brain. A bit like, imagine if you had a fruit smoothie, and you've drunk all the fruit smoothie, but there's still kind of the remnants of the fruit smoothie in the bottle. And then if you put a bit of water in that bottle and shook it up, you could get all the remnants of the fruit smoothie out, right? That's what's happening in deep sleep. The cerebral spinal fluid is flushing through the brain, and the blood capillaries go big, small, big, small, big, small, which creates this kind of flushing motion. And that directly flushes out amyloid plaques, which are what cause Alzheimer's and many other forms of dementia. It's also where human growth hormone is released. So I know you're really into your fitness. Um, if you have like a big workout during the day, like you're, you're kind of working out, you're, you're lifting uh, weights in the gym, unless that night you get enough deep sleep, your muscles will not grow. There'll be massive reduction in muscle gains. And the same goes for losing weight. So if you spent your whole day dieting, but then at night you don't get enough deep sleep, you will lose weight based on the calorific uh, deficit of not eating that much, but you won't actually make change to your metabolism that leads to long-term weight loss. So deep sleep so, so important for memory, for toxins uh, flushed out, for um, changing the body in any, any way we want. We have that period of deep sleep. And then we'll move into dream. So dream actually comes at the end of the cycle. We think of dream as being a very active sleep state, and it is. But by the time you get to dream, you've been knocked out for at least 60, 70 minutes. And if you put those together, that makes up the 90-minute sleep cycle. The cycle continues throughout the night. But what changes is the amount of time you spend in each one until you get to the last two hours where you're almost in a full dream for like two hours. Okay, so I think that's really given us the kind of foundations between these connections between sleep, like what's happening at night and how are we performing, how are we feeling, mm. how are we cognitively, how are we functioning during the day. So effectively, that is the basis of, of sleep as a, a form of uh, maintaining a healthy lifestyle. Right? Yeah, there, there is no biological process that is not adversely affected by insufficient sleep. And insufficient sleep is anything less than seven hours per 24-hour period. Every biological process is negatively affected. And yet we don't teach kids about this in school. We have a sense of almost pride that we can get by off, off a lack of sleep. It's crazy 
it's like we with the science is in we know how important sleep is i mean just just to give one interesting thing uh, because it just happened in america certain parts of america lost an hour because the the daylight saving so like 1.6 billion people do this every year different times but based on your countries but on that day where people lose one hour of sleep the next day american studies have shown there's a 22% increase in cardiac arrest the next day just by robbing people of one hour sleep that's tens of thousands more death because of one hour lost sleep there's also a massive increase in uh, traffic accidents the next day when you take one hour of sleep conversely when the clocks change and you gain an extra hour of sleep there's a 22% decrease in heart attacks the next day and a 15% drop in traffic accidents now when you roll that out in 26 countries around the world that have these daylight savings that is millions of people live longer or live shorter lives based on robbing or giving them one extra hour of sleep hmm. yeah that's powerful stuff if if we can take a step back to a slightly sort of let's say a historical perspective just to understand the connection between pre-industrial age sleep cycles modern sleep cycles and the potential benefits in accepting and embracing the idea of a nap a siesta or sleeping again after the amount number of hours you managed to get during the night so when do you draw the line between like how things were before the industrial age and how things are now and is that necessarily have uh, the, the optimal version of our sleep pattern sure so i'm sure many of your listeners have heard about this uh, heard this before that um, before the industrial revolution so about 200 250 years ago most people in western europe uh, slept very differently they didn't sleep all in one go monophasically they would obviously this depends on seasonal fluctuations and a lot of the research was done in england actually especially the british isles where it can get dark as early as 4 p.m. in the nighttime uh, in the um uh, winter time so people would go to sleep within about 2 hours of sundown so that because candles were really expensive they were made of whale oil only the wealthiest people could have these uh, candles kerosene was difficult to come across uh, or whatever they used back then so people would go to sleep within about 2 hours of sundown so it could be 6 p.m. 8 p.m. but like early right they'd sleep for about 2 3 hours and then they would wake up again like fully awake pubs would reopen um people would have these like tobacco circles you kind of sit around and smoke people would go into the fields and milk their cows they believe the quality of the milk uh, if you milk them at this time was better people would have sex they felt you're more fertile that's actually true there is a fertility boost at, at that time um There are th- hundreds of these records. There's, oh, there's even a 15th century prayer manual from Portugal, full of prayers, especially to do in the second sleep. Uh, sorry, between the first and the second sleep. So you get this reference: the first and second sleep. The way it actually came about was a, uh, a crime researcher was looking at um, records in courts, and a lot of crimes were committed after the first sleep, basically in the middle of the night. you'd get your 3 hours sleep you'd go out rob someone's house and then go back to bed again it was like the perfect crime right so this is how it first came into uh, into public awareness um now is that the best way oh sorry and then you would go back to sleep after 2 hours until uh sunrise oh, nice. again yeah. seasonal fluctuation so you'd still be averaging about like 6 7 8 hours sleep but crucially with a 2 hour gap in the middle fast forward to the modern day the most common form of insomnia in western society today most prevalent form is not sleep onset insomnia which is where you just can't get to sleep it's actually sleep maintenance insomnia 
Now, here's a description of sleep maintenance insomnia. The ability of the subject to fall asleep upon first awakening. Within two to three hours, the subject awakens again, feeling fully awake and conscious for up to two hours. The subject is then able to fall asleep again till morning. That is flipping exactly the same description as the pre-industrial sleep cycle. So could it be that there are millions of misdiagnosed insomniacs who aren't actually insomniacs? They are showing from an anthropological point of view, a much more natural sleep cycle than the rest of us who are trying to black out for eight hours. Does it mean that blacking out for eight hours is not the way to do it? And we should all be having that nighttime waking? No, not at all. Perhaps it's a chronotype thing, perhaps it's a body type thing, but it is important for people to know if they do have that sleep pattern, you're probably not an insomniac. And actually just knowing that it's okay to be awake in the middle of the night, moves us out of the fight or flight sympathetic response that keeps us awake and allows us to fall asleep. And secondly, there are a lot of people who have that sleep pattern, but they don't know that there's a second period of sleep waiting for them in the wings. So they don't stay awake for two hours, they just get up. And it's like, oh, dude, there is another four hour sleep waiting for you. Um, but you have to allow yourself to slip back into it. Interestingly, the term insomnia was first produced in print as a um, as a kind of a coin term in the New York Times in 1901. It was called the newfangled malaise of insomnia. Within 30 to 40 years of us changing the way we sleep, we suddenly have this term insomnia cropping up. So very, very interesting. Um, so no, I wouldn't say we should be sleeping like that. But if you are sleeping like that, it may not be such a bad idea. It may be just the way your body is is working. And the main thing to know is there's nothing wrong with it. You know, nighttime wakefulness is not a pathology. Uh, for some people, it's just the way they're built. So I think there we introduced the idea of, of biphasal sleep being perfectly okay, or perhaps you know sleeping for X number of hours during the night and then catching up at another stage during the day. And interestingly, that's one of the connections between your work and my work, right? So when I'm looking at, say, a healthy building concept or trying to create spaces within a building that are designed to foster wellness and well-being for people spending eight to 12 hours of their, their days or nights, if it's a residential context or if it's an office environment, then it's a place where they go to work and to be productive. And with the leading healthy building standard that's called the WELL standard, there you have an entire concept around mind. And one of the features there is the idea of restorative opportunities and, and a NAP policy. So we're starting to see the way a sort of trickle-down effect from the top, whereby the certification systems that are becoming increasingly common now in the world of real estate are encouraging and completely accepting the concept of a NAP being a healthy uh, part of a work day. It might still yeah. sound confusing for some people, but it's out there and, and this will take some time to spread, but for sure it's, it's already happening. It's already coming. Now, once you have that policy as a, as an employer, you then need to offer some kind of a space where that happens. So mm -hmm. yeah, that might be an area where I'd say, okay, well, I'm going to try and introduce some, some natural elements. I'm going to think about light. I'm going to think about the thermal qualities or the temperature in there. I need to think about acoustic isolation. When you think about what I know you've termed uh, sleep hygiene and so the environment in which one goes to sleep, like what are your, your key uh, touch points there? Like what are the, the essential elements that we need to think about when we're creating an environment, whether it's at home or in a potentially an office space where uh, it's congenial to having a, a 20 or 30 minute nap during the day? Hmm. First of all, before I answer that, I'd just like to say, 
that's so good to hear that that's part of you know new building regulation and part of what businesses are thinking about apart from any kind of philanthropic aim that the businesses might have your employees will be 30% better at anything they do after a 60 to 90 minute nap that's the science that's a fact it's like if you want to make more money give your employees a nap because they will make better deals they make better trades they'll have better interpersonal relationships it is very good for your employees yes and also you will make more money it seems crazy they aren't implementing this. You know, I did a, a thing at, at Deutsche Bank, at Deloitte. So I was telling them, you will make more money if you do this. And has it been implemented? Not that I know. But really, anyone listening, the science is there. This isn't hippy-dippy stuff. Your, your employees will be better at whatever they do after a 60 to 90 minute nap. So rant over. Next bit. Um, I would say when you people sleeping in public is a really vulnerable thing to do. So actually, your question is not so much about the bedroom at home, but actually sleeping in public, which is very different. Sleeping in public, I would say for, for a start, you need something that's lockable if possible, something that's lockable. So I know the, these great sleep pods in, I believe it's Munich airport. You can rent them for like an hour a pop and uh, these little kind of micro pod beds, but they're lockable. And it's really important that, that it's not just quiet and dark and all the sleep hygiene stuff, but they're lockable. And a lot of the uh, traumatized populations I work with, like veterans and people with uh, uh, CPTSD, simply placing a lock on your bedroom door can increase sleep quality by up to half an hour, an hour a night, because there's something about us humans we need to know no one's going to come in. We're in this deeply vulnerable state of rest. So I would say they need to be not only private and a correct temperature for sleep and yes, dark and quiet if you can, but also lockable. Um, there was one rest pod I went in, and there is a difference between a rest pod and a sleep pod, where my legs were exposed. There was kind of a big bubble thing over most of my body and my head, but my legs were exposed. Very difficult to fall asleep in one of those. You know, my feet, people could brush by, they could do something to them. I, I wasn't able to fully sleep. Um, so yes, it would be enclosed, it would be lockable, it would be private. Um, just to say, though, those rest pods, you know, there is a difference between NSDR, non-sleep deep rest, and napping. Uh, non-sleep deep rest has loads of benefits too. So even if you can't provide a full private lockable nap pod, even just a space for rest and mindfulness like they have in the Google offices in London are really, really good. Yeah, it is often the the tech companies that, that are you know, approaching me and saying, well, look, we want to create a space in a sense, in, in your terms, clearly, that they would then actually be briefing a multifunctional space where there can be some of that deep rest slash napping mm -hmm. going on. It can also be a space where it's, uh, it's congenial to uh, restorative practices, whatever that might be. Yeah. Um, taking some time out of your day, perhaps to meditate, perhaps to uh, do your prayers, or just simply take some time by yourself. And in fact, there's often the term, the quiet room or a restorative space where uh, the idea is really just to take some time away from your key tasks to recharge and yeah. to go back. And then I think within that, there's perhaps a subgroup to it, which is the, the nap pods or, or a sleeping pod. The issue there with my sort of design head on is, okay, you've got to think about hygiene now, post-COVID. You've got to think about mm -hmm. ventilation. If it's lockable and it's in closed space, then they basically need to have their own fans and, and suddenly you know, the prices do go up. But I think there's, there's real value in that. So we've established, you mentioned uh, temperature, just to dig into it. So thermal comfort typically is actually cooler than we think, isn't it? In terms of the ideal sleeping temperature. It's yeah, I'm afraid warm. I can't remember the exact temperature, ideal sleeping temperature. First of all, they differ from men and women. Mm. I remember a brilliant chapter in a book called The uh, the Descent of Man by Grayson Perry, 
and the title chapter was Air Conditioning is Sexist. Now, you see that as a title chapter and you're like, oh, come on, straight to that chapter. He's absolutely right. The average, the default setting of air conditioners uh, across the world are set to the male preferred uh, temperature, room temperature. And women need it about uh, up to one to two degrees warmer. So actually air conditioning is sexy. So the first thing your, your pods would need to be, would you'd need to adjust it because women would want a slightly different to men. Um, basically, if you're in bed and you can stick your foot out from the blankets or out of the duvet and it's warm enough to keep it outside, your room's too hot. Your bedroom should be pretty cool, like not cold, but if you stick your foot out, it should feel cool. And your nose should be cool. You know, this is cooler the better. Many people with um, uh, sleep problems, they just have their room too hot. It becomes like the princess and the pea. You know, they pile up loads of blankets and, and they get really, really hot. And you can't, you know, sleep's about thermoregulation. Remember, the, the, we used to, we now know actually that human beings used to even hibernate for long periods of time where the deep sleep state would go for a massive percentage and you could actually move into these almost hibernation states for days or weeks. Uh, and of course, what's hibernation about? Thermoregulation. So yeah, temperature's pretty important. So we'll, we'll, I'll put a, a note in the show, show notes on that, but there is a, there's a really interesting book that was published recently by the Harvard Chan School for Public Health by uh, Dr. Joseph Allen, in which he discusses exactly that point around the sexual uh, or sort of the differences between the two sexes in terms of body temperature and therefore thermal comfort within a space. And it seems that a lot of the regulations that were still uh, in place or sort of guidelines in the US and in fact, even in older buildings, how the HVAC aircon systems have been programmed referring to some data that was plucked from sort of 1980s office buildings where Precisely. guess what was happening in the 1980s? It was male dominated. They were probably wearing a suit and mm -hmm. there's now just much more sexual, um, let's say equality. And therefore those, the man in the three piece suit or in a shirt, a tie and a jacket is completely different to a yeah. lady standing in a, in a normal summer dress. So some of the solutions around that seem to be around ultimately creating almost sort of microclimates within mm -hmm. or having clusters or microclimates where it's adjustable. It's, if they're getting there with the HVAC and aircon systems, it's sort of within the next five to 10 years, it seems like that would be in a really smart building. It's sort of like sort of high performing building where they're able to adjust and allow each individual occupant to have some say over the temperature in their space just by you know the kind of airflow that's going on within that. So. Yeah, another crossover between your world and mine. Let's mm. talk about mindfulness. Uh, again, it is something that's part of the healthy building concept, the idea that a allowing time within the day and allowing a space within an office environment, for example, where meditation or mindfulness practice and perhaps breath work can, can take place is positive, again, for productivity, but also for, for worker well-being. So how do you integrate mindfulness and meditation with sleep because obviously once once you're asleep you, there's in theory for most of us at least there's no active meditation or mindfulness going on right until you get to like next level tibetan buddhist uh, sort of practice of dreaming yeah, yeah exactly but before that yeah how what's the connection between mindfulness and improved sleep quality so that if someone's perhaps practicing or finding time during the day they're also able to have a positive impact on the sleep at night which is i think you know another gain isn't it 
Yeah. So mindfulness has a whole wealth of benefits. As far as sleep goes, actually more than mindfulness, it's about regulation of the autonomic nervous system through the breath and through deep relaxation. Those are the two things that you really find affecting sleep. And it's all based on this thing called parasympathetic drive. So there's a system within the autonomic nervous system called parasympathetic drive, which is, think of it like a battery which is charged up. Every time you do anything relaxing during the day, you charge up this parasympathetic drive battery. Now, the reason most people tend to sleep slightly better on holiday than in their working day is unless you've got screaming kids and stuff, on holidays, you're probably doing more relaxing things. So every time you do anything relaxing in the day, zap, you get a little charge to the parasympathetic drive. If you spend at least half an hour a day doing something really, really relaxing that moves you into deep parasympathetic emphasis, such as yoga nidra, uh, slow, deep breathing, coherent breathing, uh, other forms of uh, non-sleep deep rest, you're spending 30 minutes charging up that parasympathetic drive. Now, what happens is then when you go to sleep at night, even if you charge it at 11 o'clock in the morning or 10 o'clock in the morning, that battery will store the drive until you choose to go to sleep at night. So when you fall asleep at night, the brain kind of downloads that battery power from parasympathetic drive, allowing you to fall asleep quicker and stay asleep longer. This means we need to completely reconfigure the way we view sleep. Sleep is not about, oh, it's half an hour before bedtime, quick, put on some sleep hygiene tips, like not looking at my phone, going, wearing my fancy red sunglasses, all this kind of stuff. It's like, that's too late, dude. Like if you've, if you've got high levels of stress or trauma, uh, but again, who hasn't got high levels of stress after the last two and a half years we've been through as a, as a global society. Um, sleep, good sleep begins during the day. How much time can you spend charging up that parasympathetic drive battery? And that's where periods of mindfulness, but especially slow, deep breathing and NSDR, non-sleep, deep rest, kind of the, the, the hypnagogic mindfulness practice, those really, really work uh, to regulate the nervous system and help you sleep well at night. So that's the link. Mindfulness is good because it can help create a habit of mind that sees uh, not getting perfect sleep as more okay, because mindfulness creates a, a fosters an attitude of okayness with myself and uh, compassionate acceptance if it's taught in the right way. Um, but the link between just standard mindfulness and sleep is quite tenuous. The link between non-sleep deep rest and slow deep breathing and sleep is very, very direct because it's based on this parasympathetic drive. So then you, you see that there is effectively a short-term benefit that is, mm -hmm. if you like, who's reaping those benefits well, first of all, the person in question, so the worker, the occupant mm -hmm. of the building, and indirectly the the employer, let's call mm -hmm. that, so the people who are then, that they're producing for once they go back into the work environment and are just sort of recharged and fresher and able to do more or get through the rest of the day without hitting X number of coffees. But then that same building occupant, that same worker gets their own slightly more medium-term benefits later on in the day it's an, an entirely private matter once they end up trying to get to sleep. That also suggests, you mentioned sort of the three hours. I think there's often, you know, there's practical considerations, of course, around when you work out and exercise, right? But when I see people exercising at 9 p.m. and the best hours of sleep seem to be between about sort of like 11 and 1 a.m., right? There's just, it's a crunch between the late workout getting to bed and getting good quality night's sleep. So you'd, that would then suggest if, if at all possible, exercise should happen lunchtime slash middle of the day. It depends what the exercise is. 
So for again, this is about the, the sympathetic and parasympathetic system. So for example, lifting heavy weights, like if you're doing a big weight session actually, can lead to such a parasympathetic hit afterward, this deep tiredness that comes afterwards. It could be reasonably beneficial or at least neutral to do in the evening. However, as we both do a lot of martial arts like Thai boxing, kickboxing, something really fight or flighty like Krav Maga at 10 p.m., if you want to go to bed at, at midnight, yeah, you're going to be wired. You're going to be in that state. So it's not so much the exercise, but the type of exercise and the effect it has on your body. And you can feel it. After your workout, do you feel deeply relaxed? Do you feel that sense of, of calm? Or do you feel this kind of jittery, you know, you've still got your, your pre-workout shake in your system or something like that? So it's kind of subjective and personal. But generally, um, exercise is really good for sleep. Uh, but yeah, uh, if you can do it within like three hours of your preferred bedtime, that's best. Sorry, uh, do it not, o- uh, not over three hours before your preferred bedtime, that's best. Cool. Well, listen, I think we could we could carry on for for a while yet, but we're going to wrap it up there. So if people want to follow along, see more of your work or reach out with any questions or, or buy the books, like where is that all happening online? Yeah, my website, charliemorley.com. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook and yeah, I'm very easy to find. So check we'll put, it out. We'll put the links in the show notes. All right. Thanks, my brother. Cool. Thank you.